Thanks, guys. That was uh, that was fun to hear for the third time. I got to hear it during. No, I'm, I'm serious. I got to hear it during warmups too. That's that was great. Thank you very much. Uh, hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? How about those Pacers? Yeah, boy. You know, my wife, my wife will tell you that you know this this team. And I can be so excited about them at one minute and so frustrated with them about two or three minutes later. Kind of sounds like marriage, doesn't it? Uh, We can be so excited about our spouse and then just get frustrated with them. Well, we're here to talk about uh, how to to have a great fight, how to fight fair, how to fight right. We're going to talk about how to fight in relationships. And there's a reason they picked me to do this one. We... Because I've got plenty of examples from my from my own life. You know, a while back, you know, the, the beautiful thing about uh, cell phones today is you can uh, set them to only ring for certain people after a certain time. There, there's there's a good and a bad to that. You know, there's the good is that you know, after ten o'clock, if my phone goes off, it's uh, after ten, it, it's going to be somebody from my family. Well, the, the 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 bad of that is if it goes off after ten o'clock at night, it's going to be somebody from my family. Because my my 20-something and my 22-year-old sons aren't calling after 10 o'clock at night just to say, hey, Dad, just thinking about you and love you. Uh, You know, like we went off at 3 in the morning not that long ago, and the first words were, Dad, um, apparently my car has been stolen, which it had been stolen out of the parking lot of the house they live in. Well, a while back, uh, phone rings after midnight, and uh, and it's this same son. And he's like, hey, Dad... um, We've had a flat tire out in the middle of nowhere. Now, I can't remember if he didn't have his jack in the car or the spare wasn't there or whatever. But he's with his girlfriend. They were coming back from Terre Haute, back to Bloomington. And, uh, and they, they literally had the flat on a bridge, this very long bridge. I could get on Google Earth, as wonderful as that is, and see exactly where they were. And, uh, and so, you know what, I'll just, I'll just I'll send AAA out there. So, so guys, I get, the phone, I get the call, I find out where they are, and I go into what kind of mode? It's fix-it mode. I get up, tie on my cape, it's time to solve this problem. So I get up and go into my office, which is right off our bedroom, and I, you know, get on the phone with AAA. I, I find out that after midnight, it, only 12-year-olds work at AAA. Um, that's part of what I discovered. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm working through this and going to get AAA out there in the middle of nowhere so I can, you know, change the tire and get them on the road. So I'm working through all these things, and I am in fix-it mode. I want to fix it. Ladies, what does my wife want to do at this point? She wants to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it at all. Uh, she wants. She, you know, she begins asking questions like, you know, shouldn't we'll call him Bill? Shouldn't Bill have caught that the last time he looked at the car, which was our mechanic? I'm going. It's a flat tire, you know, and so and I begin to interpret that as well. If Bill should have caught it, maybe I should have caught it as the father, so they wouldn't be out here in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, with a flat tire. So we're we're starting to have this conversation that I really don't want to have because she's processing the whys and the hows and what ifs and trying to stay connected to me in the midst of this. And I frankly don't want to be connected. I want to fix it so we can move on. Well, the you know finally get AAA you know on the road. So I go back to bed and I'm going to read, waiting till all this mild little drama resolves itself. And again, my my wife, God bless her, she she's vertical, so I mean she's horizontal, so she's asleep. And so she goes to sleep, and I, you know, a little while later, I get a text. Hey, AAA's here. You know, five minutes after that, tires fixed. Great. Tell me when you're back at the back at school. So another half an hour passes, and they're back in Bloomington. So I get the final text, and everything's good. So I go over, uh, trying to be a loving and understanding husband, to take my wife's glasses off because she's fallen asleep with them on and set them on the nightstand. And when I'm pulling the glasses off, she's like, what are you doing? 
I'm taking your glasses off. Well, I'm waiting up till the kids are okay. Kids are fine. They're back at the dorm. Why didn't you wake me up? I'm thinking, what could you have done if I had woken you up when they, when AAA got there? But I, I wanted to know what was going on. You should have woken me up. And so now we are having an argument. The kids are safe. And now all of a sudden we're having this argument about what we should have, shouldn't done. And what we shouldn't have said. And what about this? And you should have known. And back and forth and back and forth. And finally, one of us says, probably my wife, you know what? We'll just talk about this tomorrow. We'll just go to bed and talk about this tomorrow. So think of all the stellar ways this couple handled this so well. Uh, were we really trying to understand each other's perspectives? No. We're really trying to come to a resolution where we both were happy. With, no. Did, did, we, did we stay up and resolve everything so we wouldn't go to bed angry like you hear about? No. But you know what? There's actually a lot of things we did right in that situation. And we're going to unpack the things that we do wrong and the things that we do right when we're arguing in our marriages. Now, this is an important topic. You know, all of these topics that you're discussing are important. But this is important because we know from research that the number one predictor of how successful your marriage will be is how you handle conflict. Period. End of story. Jury's in. We have the verdict. How you handle conflict is the number one predictor of how successful your marriage will be. Now, again, we're you're at the beginning of this series. We're just starting this series called From This Day Forward. And the question that's being asked is not only can you stay married for a lifetime, but can you stay in love for a lifetime? Now, I think it's important to understand what love we're talking about. Now, this is very quickly to cover this. And, and for those of you that have taken Psych 101, you may think, oh, this is Sternberg's triangle. And no disrespect to Dr. Sternberg, but he didn't come up with this. This is God's design. You know, love is a strange word in our culture. We talk about that we love the Pacers. We love Taco Bell. We love our dog. And we also love our spouse and our kids like they're all the same. We use that same word over and over again. When we talk about staying in love for a lifetime... There are a lot of people within the faith-based world that think all we should really talk about is just staying together. That's what love is. And we should forget about all this passion and romance stuff. Well, you know what? But by doing that, we're forgetting a huge piece that God created. There are three primary components to love. The first is the love of friendship. That's this leg of the tripod. This is phileo in, in the Greek. This is we like each other. We're friends. This is good. This is a great piece, you know, but, but this on itself is simply that. This is simply friends. The second love is passion, the love of eros in the Greek. This is the love of desire. These two together are what we call newlywed love or romantic love. It's where most people decide to get married. Oh, you're, my, you're a great friend. I, I enjoy being with you, and I can't keep my hands off of you. It's so great. So that, that's, a, that's a good piece. Now, this on its own, the romance and passion on its own, is either lust or infatuation. And it will come and go. As C.S. Lewis says, this is the most whimsical of all the goddesses. Comes and goes at her whim. But we don't ignore her because God created this piece. There's a third component. And without it, the marriage doesn't stand up. And it's agape. It's the love of choice. It's the love of the will. It's a love that makes up his mind. This is how I'm going to treat you. This is what I'm going to do. Commitment on its own is fine, but it's simply that. It's being committed. No emotion, no connection, no friendship. Commitment and friendship on its own is best friends. That's good, but it's still not marriage. Commitment and passion on its own is a sexual affair. 
people that are committed to the passion only say really stupid stuff like, oh, it's the best sex I ever had. Well, that's because you're committed to sex. All three together is what makes marriage work and then what makes it stand up. All three are important. We can't ignore the passion piece. When we talk about can you stay in love forever, the answer is yes. We just have to know how to make that work. And one of the things we have to pay special attention to is how to fight, how to argue. The four components uh, we're going through in this series is first, seek God. Second is what we're doing today is fight fair. Next week is have fun, which is a huge component and a huge piece of that passion piece of the relationship. And the fourth piece is never give up. But today we're talking about fight fair or another way to say it may be to fight right. Because we're going to have conflicts. It's just how we handle it that that is the question. Now, the first question to ask and, and understand is why do people fight to begin with? Why do people disagree? Well, we're going to read from a passage out of the book of James. And I put it up on the screen because it's from the message. But I like the way uh, this translation says it. And I realize this is a rather harsh passage, but it does a great job explaining what we're discussing today. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Well, here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk, that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you're wise isn't wisdom. Wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourselves sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning and devilish conniving. Whenever you're trying to look better than others to get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life. That's what you talked about last week. Pursue God first. Begins with a holy life. And is characterized by getting along with others. That's what we're talking about today. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. Where do you think all of these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. Why we fight? Because I want one thing and you want something else. It's pretty simple. We have a different perspective. It can be something as as benign and inane as rooting for different sports teams or supporting different colleges. There are probably some of you here that aren't Texas Longhorn fans. Where I grew up and went to school. That's okay. But, but anything that we argue about comes out of you and I having a different perspective. We're going to argue in marriage. As a matter of fact, research has shown that upwards of two-thirds of the things that couples argue about are what we call perpetual problems or unresolvable issues. We'll look at those in a minute. But Meaning that you'll never see completely eye to eye. You'll never feel completely the same way. Because notice this passage does not say, do not fight. Does not say that. Does not say, do not argue. You won't find that anywhere in the scriptures. When you argue, when you disagree, the key factor is how you treat each other. Is it going to be with dignity and honor? 
as the passage says? Is it going to be disagreeing with respect? You know, I'm kind of a data nerd when it comes to relationships. And again, we live in this day and age when we have all the data. Like the friends, friends of mine at the University of Denver say, why marriages succeed is not a matter of luck. Why marriages fail is not a mystery. We understand it. We've got all the data that shows it. Uh, so, so, so as we unpack all of this data, one of the things we've found is that there are five different ways that couples handle disagreements. Three of them are, are good and can, you can stay in love and build love. And two of them usually lead to marriages falling apart. And it, they probably are not what you normally think. I mean, if you think that the way a Christian should argue in their marriage, the way a follower of Christ should handle conflict is to never have it, to never raise your voice, to never get upset, to never, if you think, then, and you think that's what it takes to have this great marriage, then in the words of Larry the Cucumber, you couldn't be more wronger. You know, they're, they're, it's not the person that never gets upset. Here are the five ways. And again, I don't, I don't really care if you remember the names, of the, but I, I want you to ask yourself, where do I fit? Where do I fit in my marriage? Where do you fit in your relationship with your children? This goes to all relationships, not just marriage. The first one is what we call the validator relationship. This is the majority of happy relationships. And it's simply that. You work hard to validate each other's opinions. You work hard to try to understand what the other person's thinking and, and validate that because it is valid. Uh, and, and so you're, you, you have conflicts, but your perspective is very much towards the longevity of the relationship and understanding the other person. That's the majority. Now, the second person or the second couple, which is the one that might surprise you, is what we call the volatile marriage. Notice I didn't say hostile. I said volatile. This is a company, this is a couple, and my wife and I have been here on more than one occasion. They're just passionate. They're going to raise their voices. They're going to be engaged. They have a series of emotions up and down, positive and negative, during an argument. They're going through life together, and they're passionate about the subject. However, what they don't do when they're passionate is put each other down. Even in their passions, they respect each other and treat each other with, with, with uh, the respect and the kindness and the gentleness. You can raise your voice and be passionate and still treat each other with kindness. The lowest number of, of, of happily married couples in the conflict model, uh, uh, the only 6%, as a matter of fact, are what we call the avoider marriage. And that's what they do. They avoid most problems. They're, they're committed to a long-term relationship. Uh, so they're committed to staying together. Uh, but, but they just, they're always giving each other the benefit of the doubt and trying to put each other in each other's shoes. And that's not necessarily bad, but here's what we found. And the reason it's only 6% because if you're constantly giving each other the benefit of the doubt and not engaging over conflicted areas, you're likely to be going through life somewhat separately. You just are. You're, you're, you're just avoiding certain conflicts that by resolving them or working through them could bring you closer. Now the two types that are usually uh, that lead towards marital dissolution, and they both start with hostile. There's the hostile engaged couple. Oh, this couple is going through life together, but they argue about everything. And they argue from a I've got to win perspective. And they argue from a, the other person has to be wrong perspective. And they're, and they're, they're engaged, but they're engaged in a battle. It's not shoulder to shoulder, it's face to face. And, and so they're constantly arguing, constantly fighting, constantly putting each other down. The final one is the hostile disengaged couple. Now, this sounds a little bit like the avoider marriage because they really don't fight a whole lot. 
Or if they fight, it's over something small and trivial. But differ from the avoider. The avoiders are committed to the marriage. The hostile disengaged are just going through life. They're not, there is no us factor. And this is where most of the divorces end up coming, uh, end up growing out of. The vast majority of divorces today do not list themselves or do not describe their marriages as highly conflicted. They finally just get to this point of saying, we're done. And we're going to explain that in a second as well. So you see in all of these, there's the, the first three, there's, there's not a necessarily a wrong. But the key is how am I going to treat each other when we, or how are we going to treat each other when we disagree? Because sometimes our models of how we handle that can mess us up. What do we do with all of that? How do we handle all that? How do we process all that? Well, we need to understand. In our culture, we say stuff like, oh, people just fall out of love. That's not true. Normally, we beat the love out of each other by the way we treat each other in our words. Or we just let love die by ignoring it and going through life separately. So, once again, how we handle conflict, how we treat each other during conflict is the ultimate predictor of how successful our marriage is going to be. So how do we put that together? Well, there's a few truths about relationships, a few uh, main points I want to make here at the beginning. And then we'll kind of, and then after that, we'll look at seven things you can do to help keep conflict uh, uh, in a place in your marriage where it's not doing damage. It, it help you handle conflict well. So but here's some basic truths about marriage. And as I go through this, I, I want to remind those of you that have heard me speak before of really my only rule when I speak about marriages, and it's called the no nudging rule. If I say something that you think applies to your spouse, you can't go, I hope you're listening to this. It's also the no kicking rule and the no amen rule. Uh, so all of those things apply. First thing to understand um, well, in the words of Max Lucado, is that conflict is inevitable, but combat is not. In other words, you and I have a choice. One of the greatest freedoms God has given you and I as his children is the ability to choose how we respond in any situation. Most people don't, don't consciously think of that. Between a stimulus and a response is a choice. The most misused phrase on the planet is, you make me so angry. You make me so angry. Because by saying that, I've blamed you for my emotions, and I've also blamed you for whatever I choose to do next. Scream, holler, throw something, call your names. It's your fault. You made me this way. Simple truth is, you may know how to push all my buttons, but my anger's mine, and what I do with it is mine. Now, we've all made mistakes in the situation. Anybody in the room ever said something that 3, 5, 10, 15 minutes later, you went, oh, why did I say that? That's the whole room. You know, we're, we're, we're group therapy, no denial allowed. That's called the amygdala hijack. We won't really explain that today, but it's your brain saying, oh, this will be a good thing to say because you think you're taking a verbal punch at the other person. And then you kind of go later, oh, that was a really bad choice. But that, we, know, we know why that happens. Point being that in the midst of all of these conversations and arguments and disagreements, I have the ability to choose. And I have to start there. That God gave me the ability to choose. So what Viktor Frankl called the last true human freedom, our ability to choose our response to anything that happens to us. Second point I want you to really understand is that you, any, your relationship, your marriage, any relationship, works on a bank account principle. Now, I don't know who came up with this idea, this illustration. I've seen people argue about it. And frankly... I don't care, but it's true. We know from research 
that your relationships, all of them, work on this bank account principle of deposits and withdrawals. Some people call it the positivity ratio. You put $5 in a bank account, you can spend $5. Except guess what? In a relationship, it doesn't work on a one-to-one ratio. Positives in a relationship are, are anything you do that's kind and caring. Words, gifts, a touch, uh, uh, speaking their love language, whatever it might be. Those are all deposits in a relationship. Withdrawals are the opposite. Harsh words, forgetful things, not speaking their love language, not touching them, criticizing them, whatever it might be. Those are all withdrawals. What's the ratio? Well, research has determined that it takes as few as five and as many as 25 positive interactions for every one negative just to keep the bank account even. This is why marriages begin to fall apart. Research has shown that the first thing to disappear in a couple's relationship after they get married is simply being nice to each other. They stop making deposits. So the bank account gets overdrawn. The positivity ratio. When people say, well, I don't feel that connected to my spouse. I don't feel that in love. My question is always, what deposits are you making? That's like saying, man, I don't know why I don't have any money in my bank account. Well, maybe you're spending more than you're depositing. It's the exact same thing in a relationship. The positivity ratio. Number two, third truth that it's important to remember about relationships uh, is that the most important communication tool you have is your ears. Why do people yell? Think about it. You know, I make a statement and somehow you respond in a way that makes me feel that you didn't understand, validate or care about what I said. So I'm just going to say it louder. Like somehow that's going to make you understand better. People yell because they feel like they're not being heard. And remember, two-thirds of the things couples argue about are unresolvable, perpetual problems. So many arguments can just go away if we take the time to listen to each other. James says it. Be slow to speak, slow to become angry, and quick to what? Listen. James 1.19. So many problems go away if we take the time to listen. People come to me and say, yeah, you know, Dr. Tim, we've got communication problems. And I'll say, no, you don't. You don't know us. We do. No. Bill, you have any problem expressing your opinion? No. Mary, any problem expressing your opinion? No. Okay, you don't have a communication problem. You have a listening problem. It's the power of listening through all these things that we're talking about, and as I encourage you to take this information and process it, we have to take the time to listen. Number three is understanding perpetual problems. I think I've given you the, for those that have heard me before here, I've given you the perpetual problem test, but we're going to take it again. How many of you in here are punctual people? You have to be on time. You like to be on time. It drives you crazy if you're not on time. How many of you, if you show up on the right day, it counts? Raise your hand proud. All right. How many of you are a place for everything and everything in its place? You're neat, tidy, organized. Real, those hands go up quick. How many of you, if at the end of the day, the house is standing, the kids are alive, the dog's tail is wagging, it was a good day? All right, raise your hand. How many of you, you put on a pair of jeans you haven't worn in a while, you find $20, that money is spent, you're the spenders in the room? 
There you go. How many of you the savers? Oh, 20 bucks. I can put that away for something. All right, good, good, good. How many of you, you're just getting cranking about 9 o'clock at night? You're the night people. Yeah. How many of you are so happy in the morning it drives everybody around you sick? Uh, all of those and many, many more are simply personality preferences. It's the way you're wired. I'm convinced some of the biggest fights in America happen every Sunday morning as people are getting ready to go to church. Some of you just had this. Because the punctual person is where? In the car. In the wintertime, the leather seats are heated up. In the summertime, the air conditioner's on. It's ready to go. House is set. Let's go. Come on. And, and the tardy person is where? In the house doing Jesus only knows what. That's exactly right. You know, I, I, had a, I had a guy tell me that he couldn't leave the house until his wife went around straightening all the curtains like they were going to get robbed by Dutch thieves who cared how neat and organized the house was. All of those are perpetual problems. We, we just don't feel about it the same way. How many of you are married to somebody that's different from you in any one of those categories? Yeah, welcome to marriage right there. Exactly. They're, they're, you're going to be different in one, if not multiple categories. But people get into that situation and then you got in the car and did a two of one of very helpful things. You either screamed and hollered at each other all the way here. And then you get in here and they walk in the church and it's, yes, praise Jesus. This is the day the Lord has made. Something like that never happened. Or you use the ever-popular silent treatment. Yeah, how many problems does that resolve? So, see, what we don't do is we don't stop and realize that, that we don't feel about it the same way. And we never will. So what does love do? Love says, you know what? It's important for my spouse to be on time. So I'm going to work hard to be on time. I'm going to let them know how they can help me be on time. But, but I'm going to work hard for that because I know that it matters to you. The punctual person's going to say, you know what? I'm going to depersonalize this. They're not in there just jacking around to tick me off and make me mad. And maybe I can do something to help them get out the door quicker. We offer each other not empathy, which means I know how you feel. We offer each other compassion, which means I care about how you feel. Perpetual problems. We, we, we learn that those are simply true. The last part I want you to understand that we know from relationships is what really destroys relationships. Uh, and it's what John Gottman calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, in apocalyptic literature, the four horsemen represent the end of the earth, the end of the world as we know it. And research has shown that if these four horsemen show up, not necessarily in order, not necessarily for any duration, but if they show up, your marriage is quickly heading for divorce. Um, and we need to pay attention to these because it has everything to do with communication and how we handle fighting. The first one is criticism. Criticism. Now, complaints are legitimate. Complaints are, honey, you said you were going to be home at 7. You didn't get home till 8. You didn't call. We were waiting dinner. The kids were going nuts. That's a complaint. Criticism goes at the person's character. What is wrong with you? Can't you ever be on time? Do I need to buy you a watch? Are you just an idiot? Same situation, different conversation. Now, reasons for complaints are also acceptable. Honey, you're right. There was a traffic jam on I-69 again. Uh, my, my cell phone was dead. I forgot my charger. I should have pulled off and called. I'm sorry. You're, you know, it, it, it was disrespectful to me. I, I, I'm sorry. We'll work on not that, ha that not happening again. The second horseman is defensiveness. Defensiveness isn't giving a reason. Defensiveness blames the other person. Well, if you were more pleasant to come home to, maybe I would be on time. If you were warm and friendly and gave me a hug and a kiss every once in a while instead of acting like a dead cold fish, maybe I'd show up early. Same conversation. 
Different direction. So criticism goes at the person's character. Defensiveness, horseman number two, blames the other person for the situation, which leads right to horseman number three, which is contempt. Contempt is anything that I do that communicates that I'm better than you, smarter than you, can't stand to be around you, and we communicate that a hundred different ways. A couple comes in, tell me about your problem. This person's talking about the marriage, and the other person's going, (laughs) which is code for can you believe what a moron I'm married to? Now think about this. If you're married to somebody who you feel thinks you're broken, there's something wrong with your character, that if every problem that's discussed gets turned back on you and blamed on you, that if they think they're better than you, smarter than you, can't stand to be around you, it's no wonder that the fourth horseman comes riding in fast and furious, which is withdrawal or stonewalling, which is simply saying, I'm done. The average couple shows up at marriage counseling six years after the fourth horseman shows up. Or at least the third. And that's why most marriages show up at marriage counseling dead on arrival. Because it doesn't matter if I can levitate a table, walk on water, they're not getting back in the marriage because they're tired of being hurt. Remember my first point was choice. How important it is to choose how we speak to each other. We can disagree and still speak with respect, still speak with kindness, and not speak with criticism, contempt, or defensiveness. How we handle conflict matters. Even in conflict, we might not be making deposits, but we can avoid making withdrawals. It's all in how we speak to each other. Final piece before I go into these seven points that I want us to think about is that God... (laughs) in his sovereignty and in his sense of humor, created men and women very differently in more ways than just the plumbing. Our brains process things differently, especially in conflict, as this video so wonderfully illustrates. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And... I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail out. See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Come on! If you would just... Don't! Try to see things my way Do I have to keep on talking till I can go? 
I'd like to take credit for that. It's, um, our brain processes things very differently. Not only do we see differently, smell differently, taste differently, uh, process so many different things differently in the male and female brain. Uh, the, the biggest thing the male and female brain do differently is process fear and shame in different ways. And when it comes to conflict, this is what is key. When, when a woman feels disconnected in the relationship in any way, her fear is that she's not being loved. Her fear is that her husband is pulling away from her. And so she comes and in good measure and for good reason says the worst thing she can ever say to her husband, and that's, honey, we need to talk. Because what he hears is I'm about to be told everything I'm doing wrong. Because his big fear is not being enough for you. His big fear is not being able to provide for you, to protect for you, to protect you. And if he feels he's not doing that, then the shame button gets hit. Except the sh- it, it, that's not in consciousness. You know, in other words, you know, when's the last time you heard a guy say to his wife, well, you know, honey, whenever you criticize my driving, I just feel so ashamed. No, we don't realize it. But when that driving gets criticized, we begin to feel that you're not thinking we're taking care of you. And so we usually respond out of anger. Now, that's not an excuse, men. But I want you to understand the reason. Fear goes up in the female brain to the tend to be friend. Fear goes down in the male brain to the fight or flight. So our brains just process this differently. So the goal is not empathy. The goal is compassion. Caring, understanding. Wives, if you feel disconnected from your husbands, we, you need to ask them for what you need. And you need to say, honey, I know that you love me. It would mean a lot to me if you would. Because then we're coming along beside you and helping you and protecting you. Because that's your desire. I mean, most women don't like men who are afraid. They just don't. Because they're wanting to feel protected. I had a wife tell me a while back that if she heard noise downstairs, she would be the one going downstairs with a, with a baseball bat and not her husband. And she was not saying that pridefully. She was saying that very sad. Men, if, if your wife comes to you with a concern about the relationship, you need to not, not hear it as a criticism of you're not doing enough. We need to figure out how we can step back up, step up to the plate and assuage her fear that we're there. We love her. We care for her. You know, back to the driving thing. It's so common. Driving down the road, a wife says, would you slow down? Would you quit driving so fast? He hears that as... You're endangering me, and we don't think we are. Men can see spatially better than women. Women see peripherally. Men see spatially. More men are engineers. Women can be an engineer. I get that, but we see differently. Scientific fact. All men think they can drive NASCAR. (laughs) We don't think we're too close to that car in front of us. It would help if you would say, honey, it would make me feel safer if you would slow down a little bit. And now, men, that's when you got to buck up and say, you know what? It's about making our wife feel safer so I can do that, too. Our brains are just different. And that can be a good thing. We just need to understand that. Seven things you can do. Seven, seven, not necessarily rules, but really strong suggestions that kind of put all of this together for us. The first one is learn to take a time out. Scott Stanley, University of Denver, one of the top marital researchers on the planet, uh, testifies in front of Congress, all sorts of presidential commissions. You say, Scott, what's the most important thing you've learned in 30 years? He will say, learn to take a time out. Learn to realize that if we keep going down this path, one or both of us is going to say something we regret. Learn to realize I'm getting upset. I'm getting frustrated. I need to take a time out. 
Now, in every sporting, you see that happen in, in sports all the time. The coach realizes his team's a little disconnected, getting frustrated. You take a timeout. You have to also come and take a time back in, but you take a timeout. See, so many couples don't do that. They're speeding down the road at 70 miles an hour, and they see a bridge that says, or they see a sign that says bridge out in five miles. Instead of going, hey, we better slow down. No, they just hit the gas. <clears throat> now it says bridge out in two miles, and now we're going 90. It says bridge out in 500 feet. We're going 100. Then we try to hit the brakes, and it's too late. Learning to take a time out is we don't want to damage what's so precious to us, and that's our marriage. We need to learn to take a time out. Second thing, go to bed. Notice I didn't say, don't go to bed angry. I said, go to bed. Sadly, that verse is greatly misinterpreted. I've heard many of well, many preachers stand up and say, my wife and I resolve every argument before we go to bed because that's biblical. No, it's not. It's just not. What staying up and fighting does is make you fight tired. And the night person can fight all night long where the morning person's going, oh, you win. I just got to go to sleep. What the verse really says, it says, be angry. It's not an imperative. You have to be angry, but be angry and yet do not what? Sin. Then the second part of the verse says, let literally translation is, let the sun not go down on your wrath. It's a different word. Wrath is vengeful anger. Wrath is going to sleep going, boy, when you get to, you're going to get it tomorrow. I'm going to get up and let the air out of the tires and I'm going to put holes in all your socks and I'm going to burn your... No. That's, the, that's what the Bible says don't do. There are many times in our marriage that we'll go to bed frustrated with each other. And you know what? 99% of the time, okay, 97% of the time, we wake up the next morning and what we thought was such a big deal the night before just isn't anymore. Go to bed. Get a good night's sleep. Don't go to bed vengeful. Number three, have fun. Laugh. So many positive things happen in your brain when you laugh. You did not get married thinking, boy, I just can't wait to the day I can't stand to being around you. I'm pretty sure that's true. You got married. This is somebody I can have fun with. I, we can laugh with. I can enjoy it. Yes, couples quit doing that. One of the best predictors of how well you're going to process a fight is how much fun you're having together when you're not fighting. How healthy your relationship is when the disagreements come because they will. Learn to laugh. Even when an argument begins to, to engage or, or to take off, sometimes a, a healthy dose of laughter can get you back on track. Number four, shut your mouth. Had a marriage a while back I was working with, sadly dissolved after 35 years. Statistically, they're in the nil category. If you've been married over 30 years, your chances of divorce statistically are nil. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but statistically that's true. But her husband called her two cents because she could never not give her two cents worth on everything. And he finally said, I'm done. I've seen guys do it too. It's not just a female thing. Sometimes the best thing I learned to do is close my mouth and say, you know what? I don't, I don't need to say anymore. Don't need to say, but. Number four, the greatest gift we give our spouse is the gift of acceptance. Goes back to the Garden of Eden. Research has shown that our core desire is to be loved and accepted, to be known and loved. 
people that know us well and love us anyway. Garden of Eden. First wedding present ever given was the gift of complete and total acceptance. Adam didn't say, gee, God really wanted a blonde, a little taller, didn't talk quite so much. <laughs> the gift of acceptance. You know, women, you, you may not realize this, but research has shown that the vast majority of husbands would change nothing about their wives. And husbands, we need to make sure that we communicate that. But so many arguments make us feel like you're going to be happier if I was different. And that's why they become so destructive, because we begin to feel not accepted. And if we don't feel accepted, then we do exactly what Adam and Eve did. When sin showed up, they hid from each other and from God. Offer the gift of acceptance. Next is similar to shut your mouth, but it's just take responsibility, not... You know, for everything about yourself. In any argument, in any fight, in any disagreement, there's one person I can control, and that's me. And so many arguments start with you, 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 you. And I have got to start with me. I've got to start with me. And then finally, the seventh point is to love. That's simple, yet it's powerful. Because the love of friendship is great, and the love of passion is great. Leo, eros, and agape. The willful love of choice. That above all, I can pursue love. And that's what God calls us to pursue. Paul, at the end of Corinthians, he just goes through this list of many wonderful things, great things, phenomenal gifts, all these types of uh, things that we should be doing. And then he goes, at the end of it all, three things are going to last. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest... Is love. Can you stay in love forever? Yes. Can you stay passionately in love forever? Yes. But you have to pursue love. And pursuing love means pursuing peace. Now, peace is not the absence of noise. When all of my kids lived at home, two in, one just graduated from college, and then another still in college, and one still at home. When we were all at home, the oldest son was a drummer. The the middle son played lacrosse, always bouncing that hard little rubber ball off the side of the house. And, and my daughter, God bless her, she's just like me and my mom. We love to talk. So it's not about being quiet. It's not about a lack of noise. Pursuing peace is pursuing harmony, pursuing reconciliation, making sure that there is nothing between us that's causing a wedge and that's driving us apart. Love pursues peace. And it doesn't give up. I was just on the phone yesterday or Friday with a guy for a long time. And, and my heart breaks because it's another couple that is this close to getting divorced. They've got a two-year-old child. But this is, this is it. They, they, they've got to that stage where they only care about their perspective and each other. And it's he's not doing this and she's not doing that and he's not this and she's not that and you're not and this not and I'm not. And, 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 and they're not pursuing peace at all. They're not taking a time out. They're not laughing and having fun. They're not shutting their mouth. Uh, they're not accepting each other. They're not taking responsibility for themselves and they're certainly not pursuing peace and love. And I told them, if you stay on this path, I know where this ends. And neither one of you are going to like it. From this day forward, when the Bible mentions marriage, 
What it says about this day forward is the two are now what? One. And what oneness means is I pursue you and our love above anything else. I pursue God first, and then I learn to fight right so I don't damage our relationship. I treat it as special, honorable, and I care for it. Little book of Jude at the end of the New Testament, right before Revelation, one chapter, opens with Jude, the brother of James, saying this. May mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. That is my prayer for your marriage and mine, for your family and mine. May mercy, offering forgiveness to each other. May peace, seeking harmony, reconciliation, treating conflict the way conflict should be treated, treating each other with respect, kindness, handling it well, and love. The love that no matter what else happens, I can choose to treat you well. That is within my power to do. May mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Father God, thank you for the gift of love. Thank you for the creation of marriage. Lord, marriage is a gift that you created and gave to us to be stewards of. And yet so many times we are not good stewards of it because we're not good stewards of the way we handle conflict. Your word does not say don't have conflict. It says that in the midst of it, we can can love each other. We can care for each other. We can forgive each other. Uh, We can pursue peace. We can offer each other mercy. And we can give each other love. Lord God, may that be true in our lives this day and every day from this day forward. We ask this in Jesus' name.